You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Looking ahead into the syllabus, we are slowly falling behind. And that is because we have had such uh, wonderful and robust discussions from the book. It's, it's become way more than I anticipated. Um, and so I'm just going to try to manage the clock a little bit, at least for a few weeks, and, get, and see if we can pick up the pace a little bit in terms of the syllabus, just so that we can come to the finish line at the same time. So, having said that, again, this week we've got plenty to talk about, for sure, but we begin on page 179, meanwhile, back in Rome, meanwhile, back in Rome. And I feel, I, I feel very confident with being a little more abbreviated here, because we're going to begin tonight with the, in the syllabus with Roman Catholicism. So we don't have to exhaust it, not that we would have, but if we kind of blow through here this Council of Trent, that's okay. There's plenty to talk about with regard to Roman Catholicism, and we will get to it beginning tonight, and then we will spend an entire session next week on it. So let's talk about the Council of Trent a little bit. Uh, what was it, and why did it exist Go ahead, say it again to me. It existed to negate the Protestants. That's right. It, it was what is commonly called the Counter-Reformation. That's right. So it was called to counter what was occurring within Roman Catholicism. Yes, that's right. How long did it last, by the way? Anybody do the math? 18 years. 18 years. That's a long church council. Think about it. Wasn't it at some point someone said, how many months were these councils? How many years was the Council of Trent? I believe it was three separate sessions, if I remember correctly, over a span of 18 years. A long time. Okay. That's right. Anything else about it that stands out to you? On page 180... Well, let's do this. Let's, let's back up, because this is a good place to talk about it. So let's talk about Desiderius Erasmus, maybe. We'll begin with that. That's on page 179. Erasmus. What stands out about him? Yes, he produced the Greek New Testament. That's right. Uh-huh. It became the basis for the study of the regional languages for Zwingli and his partners in ministry, later enemies, so forth. But anyway, we'll get to Zwingli here in a few weeks. Yes? What was, was Erasmus a Protestant or a Catholic? He was Catholic. He was Catholic. And was he like hunky-dory with the state of the Catholic Church? Was he all cool with it? He was, he was very open. He was, he was more than open to reform. Yes, he was very upset with the 
with the state of Roman Catholicism here in the in the 16th century. That's right. He did. He died unhappy at the end of his life. Why? Because of the split of the church. Yes, that's right. Because he was not looking to split the church, but reform the church. And it didn't reform. It didn't reform. So, yes, he died a very um, unhappy man. Yes, exactly. So, as uh, Jamie said, wasn't that Luther's original intentions? Yes, absolutely as well. Yes. Yes, interesting, huh? I mean, yeah, let's talk about some kind of things about Erasmus. I mean, you could throw stones at him, and Luther certainly did in The Bondage of the Will. I uh, recommend it to you if you've never read it. Uh, it's his response to Erasmus and, uh, and Luther's full personality comes out in that work. Um, but yes, he, he was a back-to-the-Bible kind of guy. Back-to-the-Bible kind of guy. He wants the Bible to be read by the common people. So that's very commendable. I think that um, in, in, on page 179, in the middle, there's a, there's a key statement that stands out, I think, uh, for him. It says he desperately wanted to reform the church, but just as desperately he wanted to keep it united. And so, ultimately, he valued external unity above doctrinal integrity. And that was his undoing. Okay. All right. Page 180, last page paragraph before the contribution for the Council of Trent. You notice this. It says, generally with regard to Protestantism, the Catholic Church opted for condemnation rather than conciliation. So, positions hardened. Positions hardened. Pope Paul III produced an indexed, a list of prohibited books consisting of everything Protestants had written, including the translations of the Bible. He reinstituted the Inquisition to root out Protestant heresy, but most significantly he called the 19th Ecumenical Council of the Church, meeting in Trent, Italy in 1545. Three lengthy sessions, completes its work in 1563. Okay. So, what were the, the two big things? First sentence, under contribution. The Council of Trent basically did two things. So what were the two big things? I hate that use of that word things, it's so ambiguous, but regardless, that came from this counter-reformation that are still with us today, by the way. Still with us. Okay. They did, yes. Yes, so they clarified Roman Catholic doctrine in contrast to Protestantism, and so before we get to the anathema, there's a couple of uh, important statements here that play into this. You see it on page 180. The council defined the church's authoritative sources. Authoritative sources. Remember, this question of authority, it's been circulating, right? We introduced it way back at the beginning, and it, it is continuing to, cir to circulate, and will continue to circulate. So within... 
uh, Orthodox Roman Catholic theology, the Roman Catholic system codified in the Council of Trent, and something you need to know about the Catholic Church is that they reaffirm, they never, they never repudiate, they reaffirm. So the Second Vatican Council just reaffirmed everything that Trent had said and then moved forward from there. So they never removed the anathema. Their, their Catholic teaching on authority remains. And so from a Roman Catholic point of view, what, are the, what is the source or sources of authority? Scripture and tradition. Scripture and tradition. But not in that order. Yeah. So here. Yes, exactly. So the, the Catholic Church becomes the authority over what Scripture and tradition have authority. That's right. And by the way, whenever there are what I would call uh, the two book theory of authority, in other words, uh, two authority sources, Scripture is one of them and anything else is the other, what inevitably happens is there is a hierarchy and Scripture never rises to the top. It is always the other authority source in practice. They, their doctrinal statement may be holding them in tension, but in practice what always happens is that the other source of authority sits above the Scriptures. Can only be one. That's right. Uh, yeah, we would even say by definition there can only be one. They did, and we and we will get to that. Yes, so so yes, that is another thing that was done there is they instituted some abuses to to root out some of the rampant immorality that was occurring. For example, the footnote on page one eighty one. You brought it up. Let's talk about it. Uh, ironically, the convening Pope Paul the Third had four illegitimate children himself. So yeah, I mean, this was a mess, a mess. So they made some efforts to clear it up. One could uh, reasonably argue that there ought to be a few more efforts made today, one might think. But anyway, I'm not here to throw too many stones. Okay, so definitely authority, scripture and tradition, with the church alone as the authorized interpreter what about salvation? How is salvation defined? The Roman Catholic system. It's page 181 at the top. Okay, ultimately it descends to human merit, but yes, the, the, it is, um, what's the statement here? It's, it is through the sacraments. The thing I'm, I'm fishing for, the answer I'm fishing for is progressive. It is progressive as opposed to justification being forensic at a moment in time, a declaration of justification. And you notice the author rightly explains this, that what has happened in Roman Catholic tradition is justification and sanctification have been merged and confused. And so sanctification, which is progressive, when it's, when it's rolled up into justification, then you end up with Roman Catholic doctrine, which is a, a progressive or a, or a gradual justification through sacraments. That's right. Okay. You notice then again, uh, what is that, third paragraph, with regard to salvation, the Council of Trent declared that human merit played a role in salvation. Now, we need to make sure we understand what they mean by this, okay? So they would say that salvation was by grace through faith. 
What they won't say is it was by grace alone, through faith alone. It's the, it's the alone part. It's the sola that stuck in their craw. You see uh, here, again, in that same paragraph, halfway down or so, the idea is that even though eternal payment for sins is remitted through the sacraments of confession, temporal payments for sins is necessary in the form of penance, indulgences, acts of love, and other good works of human merit. Okay, Again, we're going to, we're going to explore Roman Catholic theology in much more detail, so I'm not going to go any further into it than that, but I will take you deeper beginning um, next week, for sure, next week. Okay. The other thing probably is the recognition that the sacraments operated ex opere operato, from the work performed, the Latin from the work performed. In other words, that the sacrament itself contained the grace to do what needed to be done, just the, the act of, of, of participating in the sacrament. Okay. Well, good. Anything else that we want to... The dead horse, want to flog it? No. There, is, there has been no repudiation of the decrees of the Council of Trent. The Roman Catholic Church is incapable of reforming. Its own theological system doesn't permit it. It would implode were it to reform. Uh, and we will talk about it. When I say it's not able to reform, there, on the fringes, on the edges, there are things that can change. But, but core Roman Catholic theology cannot change. It will not change. Uh, and as far as the, the attitude of the church towards Protestants is, if you just apologized and came back, we would receive you with open arms. That's, that's the basic approach. And there are certain things, the Mass, the Pope, they can't change. If that changed, the system would implode. They can do the Mass in English. Take it out of Latin and put it in English. That's window dressing. That's just window dressing. Okay, good. We will look, promise you, much more detail at these things. All right, well, then let's move on to Anglicanism. This is a fun one. Anybody here with an Anglican background? Which in, a, in the U.S. would be Episcopal? Anybody? Wife? Okay. Right. There are actually thin slivers of Anglicanism um, slash Episcopalian that are genuine believers, but they are the, the slices are pretty thin. They're not very widely distributed. Packer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were some, for sure. Uh, Anglicanism, by the way, uh, in Africa is far more evangelical than Anglicanism in England. Far more evangelical. Okay, so, I love this statement. Page 183. The Church of England came about, at least in one sense, due to, the, due to hormonal issues, namely lust. I love it. Explain it to me. It's good to be the king. That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. What was Henry VIII's problem? He couldn't get a male child. No male heir. Yeah. No male heir. Okay, that's a real problem. The church would not annul his marriage. He, wa he wanted a new wife because Catherine of Argonne hadn't produced a male heir, which is fascinating, right? Because who's responsible for the sex of the child? It is the king. Right? It, that is, it's 
it's a male contribution. But they didn't know that. So he wants a new wife. They couldn't transition back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If they could have just transitioned, he could have had his male heir. Yeah, good point. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> King Billy. Yes. He also had an eye for the ladies. That was a particular lady of court by the name of Anne Boleyn. Yes, and he had the hots for her. So the Pope wouldn't grant him a divorce. So what did he do? That's it. He said, hey, you know what? The easiest way to do this is just start a new religion. <laughs> so he, he broke away, broke away, declared himself supreme head of the Church of England. He was authority. There's authority again. Yeah, you're right. You're right. What was the doctrinal position of the Church of England when it was formed? Same as Roman Catholics, except he's the Pope. He's you know he's his own little Pope, but he's big. He's you know he's a, anyway. He's an interesting guy. He's just a fa- Henry VIII, fascinating guy. Okay, fifteen thirty four, the Act of Supremacy. The Act of Supremacy. Okay, so it starts out clearly and completely Roman Catholic, but what happens? There's some, there's some heroes in the story here. He did. He did. Thomas Kramer. Yes. He's a hero. I, I wish he'd have made the book. Should have made the book as one of the 40. Yeah, a real, a real hero. Real hero. So what did Kramer do? He attempted to reform the church. That's right. He produced something. Here you see it. Under Henry's younger son, Edward VI, who was more sympathetic to the Lutheran position. 1549, Cranmer produced a Protestant-leaning prayer book, which after its revision in 1552 took the better-known title of the Book of Common Prayer. Still in use. Still in use. So it is evangelical. It is Protestant. That's what I should say. It is Protestant. But what happened to poor Edward VI? He didn't live all that long. Didn't live all that long. And when he died, who assumed the throne of England? Catherine of Argonne. Remember her? Yeah, she's the divorced one. Her daughter, Edward's half older half-sister, succeeded and reversed all directions back towards um, Roman Catholicism. Hundreds of English Protestants, including Thomas Cranmer, burned at the stake, resulting in the notorious title Bloody Mary. It was a bad time. It was a really bad time to be a, a Protestant, an evangelical. I, those terms are interchangeable at that point in history uh, in England. Definitely a bad time. And what, and what happened to the Protestants, to the, to the evangelicals? They fled. They fled the, the persecutions. If they hadn't fled, they'd have died. Many, many died. And uh, the Lord took Mary... You see it there, 1558, she's succeeded by Elizabeth I, daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn. Isn't this funny how this stuff works out? Elizabeth is a Protestant. Elizabeth is a Protestant. Okay, another um, interesting factual tidbit here for you. John Knox, 
wrote a polemical, very polemical work against the monstrous regime of women rulers is the title. And it's, it's a little bit longer than that. You can Google it. But that's, that's kind of the working title. And it was written while Bloody Mary was on the throne. But by the time it got published and released, poor Elizabeth was on the throne, and she wasn't really all that thrilled with it for obvious reasons. <laughs> so that's what happens when you've got a publisher who drags their feet. Sometimes your book gets to market at the wrong time. Anyway, she is Protestant, but notice this, although not friendly towards Reformed theology specifically. Her problem were the counterforces within the Church of England. So now the Church of England is being torn. This is going to result in the English Civil War, by the way. So it is being torn by Catholics, right, and by the Reformed Party. And what does she want? What's her solution to the thing? Compromise, the middle way, the middle way, yes. The via media, or the middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. This is the Elizabethan settlement of 1559, establishes the Anglican Church as theologically Protestant and ecclesiastically Catholic. The doctrinal statement that was imposed was the 39 Articles of Religion. Key early theologian is Richard Hooker, whose name sits above this chapter. Okay? So, what's it like to be in a church that's theologically Protestant and ecclesiastically Catholic? What do you think that looks like? Different than anything we know, for sure. What kinds of things might it be characterized by? Strange hats. Strange, strange hats. Yeah, probably strange hats. Mm-hmm. Liturgy and icons. Probably liturgy and icons, yeah. Who's the head of the church, by the way? The king. The king is still the head of the church. That's right. And the king was really only interested in keeping the realm together. How did that work with the sacraments and all that? How did it work? Isn't that interesting? So would they practice? Yes. Did they believe it, it carried saving faith or, or saving efficacy? No. Yeah. It was, it's, it was muddled. It is muddled. It is muddled. It's often called Anglo-Catholicism. Anglo-Catholicism. Again, um, your wife experience with with the Episcopal Church. Most of the early leaders of this country were Episcopalian. You've heard of the terminology "high church." That's that's in within Protestantism. That's Episcopalian worship. It's very liturgical. It's very formulaic. Good. You can see page 186. Like the Reformers, Hooker rejected the Catholic doctrines of transubstantiation, purgatory, indulgences, sacraments other than baptism and the Eucharist. Hooker was thoroughly in sync with Protestants with regard to justification by God's grace based on the work of Christ through faith alone. But Hooker believed that even though Roman Catholics did not hold this principle theologically, they could still be saved by God's grace. 
just kind of a muddled sort of thinking going on here. What else do we have here? Uh, justification, it was also somewhat inconsistently a lifelong process of being brought into participation in the divine nature. Again, it's, the, it's those threads of, of justification as a process. You're never sure. You're never sure. The middle way. Again, you notice on uh, page 187, one area in which Hooker seemed closer to medieval Catholicism than Reformation Protestantism was in his views regarding natural theology. Remember we talked about natural theology? Aquinas, which reflected the influence of Aristotle and Aquinas. This resulted in a view of original sin that was not nearly as pessimistic as the continental reformers. Hooker believed that even fallen humans have rational and moral abilities to respond positively even to general revelation and can cooperate with divine grace along with special revelation resulting in a very synergistic form of salvation. So does it mean that no one was saved within the Church of England? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Salvation is always a result of the work of Christ on our behalf, applied to us by the Spirit of God, even to people with confused theologies, which is super important, because there's nobody sitting in this room who didn't have a very confused theology when you came to faith. You see it? Okay, this version of Anglicanism has been carried on in the Anglican or Episcopal churches around the world. All right. Anything else with regard to the hooker? Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. And this, by the way, and we will get to this weeks down the road here when we talk about EC, uh, ECT, evangel uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. This was a movement about 25 years ago or so. It was an attempt to try to overcome the differences between evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism, and one of the of the real promoters of that was J.I. Packer, J.I. Packer himself, because he had, even though he wrote brilliantly, uh, when you pushed him up against the wall, he had trouble drawing sharp lines as to who was in and who was out. So we will look at that document. I think I reproduced that document in your, in your uh, syllabus, okay, evangelicals and Catholics together. So, uh, Chuck Colson, Bill Bright were at the centerpiece of, of that effort. Okay, last one. Let's treat him fairly. Why? <laughs> because you might have an apartment next to him in heaven. <laughs> Our third character for tonight is... Jacobus Arminius, or James Arminius, if you like. What do we know about him? Did he start as a Roman Catholic? No, he did not. He did not. Born in Holland, 1560, studied at the University of Leiden in Holland, then on to Geneva, where he studied under Theodore Bezer. Calvin's protege. All right, editorial note. Be careful of the protégés. <laughs> they take the truth and then they just run it out as far as they can towards the horizon. Often 
potentially distorting things along the way. Okay, so you notice Arminius began to question the more extreme form of Calvinism, particularly predestination, as taught by Bezo. Okay, what was that form of predestination that was taught by Bezo? Okay, I'm not saying that it was wrong, by the way. I'm just saying that it was um, arguably not Calvin's view. Double predestination. Double predestination. What is double predestination? Yes, that's right. The people are either predestined to heaven or predestined to hell. Okay. And now there are nuances of it. There is, there is um, double equal predestination. <laughs> there is, I'm. There is the the view, and and uh, in fact, let's do this. I left it in the copy machine. I need somebody to go to the copy machine for me. And there should be a hundred pieces of paper. I've got, I've got some handouts for you. Let's hang on to double predestination and we'll come back to it. What else, what else do we know about uh, Jacobus Arminius? Okay. Affirm the doctrine of justification, sola gratia, sola Christus, sola fide. Mm-hmm. I think they're in doubles like that, Simon. Is that right? So maybe you get a couple of guys to hand them out for people, please. This was um, part of the, the disagreements here. Having to do with the order of decrees. In other words, within the mind of God. And by the way, this is... This is influenced to some degree by logic. By how one logically understands what must have occurred as opposed to specific um, scriptural revelation. But here, we're on page 191. What Arminius primarily rebelled against in Reformed theology was the view of predestination, which asserted that everything is caused by God's decision or decrees, including the fall of humanity into sin. The choice of both the righteous for eternal blessing and the unrighteous for eternal punishment, double predestination, and the monergistic view of salvation of those chosen for righteousness. These were his beefs. Arminius believed... Second to last sentence of that paragraph. Arminius believed that it was not that God determined it, but rather that God permitted it. Necessarily so, since God created humans with genuine free will. So, back to the fall. What happened at the fall? Did God predestine the fall? Did God permit the fall? This was a battleground. A battleground. He also rejected a monergistic view of salvation, that is, that God alone accomplishes it with no human involvement. Not, notice the word merit is not being used. It is no human involvement. Arminius's synergistic, next paragraph, view of salvation was certainly not based on any optimistic view of the abilities of sinful humans. And then there's that uh, lengthy uh, quote. 
In Arminian theology, page 192, this necessary divine grace is called prevenient grace. That is grace that precedes or comes before. This kind of grace is given to everyone, not just the elect, enabling them to do what they are unable to do on their own in their fallen sinful state, except by faith the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So, taking a look here on uh, chart 59, the orders of decrees. Again, I don't want to get buried in this, since this is not a systematic theology class. But these are the classic positions or views. And in here, by the way, it says that uh, some have have, uh, accused him of being semi-Pelagian or even Pelagian. That is not fair. That is not fair. So, superlapsarianism, the creation of man with a view to electing some to eternal life and damning others to eternal perdition. Permission of the fall of man, this is, this is the order salutus. This is the, the, the thinking of this is the order in the mind of God. Permission of the fall of man results in guilt, corruption, and total inability, gift of Christ to redeem the elect, gift of the Holy Spirit to save the redeemed, and sanctification of all the redeemed and regenerated. Infralapsarianism. Permission of the fall of man results in guilt, corruption, and total inability, election of some to life in Christ. In other words, the question between these two is, where does election unto salvation in the mind of God occur? Does it occur before man is even created? Or is it a result of man's creation and God's permission of man's fall? That's what separates those two. And as you look down, you can see that once... Once that is arrived at, all the rest of it kind of plays itself out. These are both positions of what is called the limited atonement. So they're both well within the boundaries of Reformed theology, properly understood. The third column, Emeraldian, is an unlimited atonement. This is permission of the fall of man results in corruption, guilt, and moral inability gift of Christ to render salvation possible to all, elect of some for the gift of moral ability, the gift of the Spirit and the sanctification by the Spirit and so forth. So what you see here is that the death of Christ makes salvation possible to all. But election makes it certain. Election makes it certain. And then there's Lutheran, Wesleyan, Roman Catholic. We're not going to get lost there. So... How does Arminius fit into this? What what Arminius would say is that because of prevenient grace, this grace that proceeds before, God has overcome the, the result of the fall, the deadness of the fall, and rendered all men everywhere capable of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Not all clearly do. Not all clearly do. So. After his death, page 193, 46 Dutch pastors came, had come to accept his view, known as the remonstrance, produced this remonstrance of five points. 
God, number one, God chose to provide salvation by His grace through Jesus Christ to all who would have faith in Christ and persevere in that faith. Secondly, Christ's death on the cross was for all people, but only those who believed in Him would realize its benefits. Three, fallen humans cannot do any good apart from regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit. Four, God's grace is necessary to do any good, but that grace can be resisted. And then five, true believers by grace can persevere in their faith, but that perseverance is not certain. So that was their position. It was declared heretical, (laughs) and counterpoints were put forward, which you and I know as the five points of Calvinism. That is where they originated. They were counterpoints to these five put forward by the remonstrants. Okay? So each one is in direct refutation of these five principles. Let's see. Is there anything more we want to say? Because we, we, go, we are going to dig much more into this when we get... Yes, he was. Yep, by the Dutch Reform. Maybe I'll just say this, provenient grace, grace that comes before or renders all, not just the elect, able to do what on their own they cannot do, except by faith, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So this is classic Arminian theology. Classic Arminian theology. If you believe this, are you going to spend eternity together with your Reformed brothers? Yes, you will. You will. Can this be twisted, pushed out of bounds, pressed to the edge of the box, and get really bizarre and even heretical? Sure can. But classically defined, it does fall within the boundaries of orthodoxy. It is salvation by grace through faith alone in the, in the accomplished work of Christ. The question is, how is it applied? Okay? I would be willing to bet that at least half of you, probably more, have come to faith in an Arminian um, conception of salvation. John Gerstner did. John Gerstner did, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's common. It's very common. Okay? So, all right. Anything else with regard to uh, Arminius? Right. Exactly. Excellent. So his point is that valuing the glory of God so highly as he did, he believed or observed that the extreme forms of Calvinism, extreme in his point of view, was turning was denying God his glory by turning God into um, a puppet master and people into robots or so forth. Yes? Right. Yeah, I mean, his exegesis of Romans 9 produced his theology. That's right. Corporate election, yep. Do us all good to be circumspect in some of these things. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you want to pursue it, there's some great stuff. So, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. Um, Yeah, there's just a number.
but yes. Okay, good. Hang on to that order decrees. It may come back up. So we're on page 20 of your syllabus, The Rise of Monasticism. So just to refresh you, we are in the third of the six divisions of history. We are in the the darkness and withdrawal period. So last week we looked at the first aspect of darkness, and that was Islam, the rise of Islam. Tonight we're going to look at the withdrawal of monasticism, and we will introduce the second phase of darkness, which is the rise of the papacy. Okay, so... We will not spend a long time with monasticism, but it is, I don't want to just brush over it because there's a couple of really significant ideas associated with it. So, page 20. With the coming of Constantine, the acceptance of Christianity as the official religion, it became harder and harder to tell the followers of Christ apart from those who were merely along for the ride. Again, we need to remember that in that time, in the, the state machinery and the religious machinery were so overlapped that the idea of separate realms was just foreign to them. So, when it became politically expedient to be a follower of Christ, guess what? Everybody becomes a follower of Christ. And so... It was very. It was becoming increasingly difficult to tell apart who were true followers of Christ and who were who were not. In this climate of immorality, in this climate, immorality and impiety abounded even within the church. As a strong reaction against the evils of that day, certain men and women began to separate themselves from both the church and society. Originally, these monastics, it comes from the Greek word monakos, which means celibate or single, such as Anthony. You notice the early date here for Anthony 251 were solitary figures who gave up all worldly possessions and lived an ascetic life as hermits in response to Jesus' words that a rich young ruler, Mark 1021, tell everything you have and come and follow me. Later on, others would seek to emulate them and thus were born monastic communities. These monastic communities spread all over Europe and by the 4th century could be found as far away as Ireland. Monastic communities. In 8529, a certain monk named Benedict of Nursia, you can see his picture there, kind of a decent looking sort. I can make him bigger if you'd like. Yeah, I'm just showing off my talents. Doesn't he look like a, like a decent sort? He's got a pretty good beard. A certain monk by the name of Benedict of Nursia founded a monastery. At Monte Cassino. Okay. Any World War II history buffs? You know anything about Monte Cassino? Was destroyed. It was a, it was the site of a long and bloody battle in the conquest of Italy, in World War II. Yeah. So here in this monastery and you know, set up on the up and away, <laughs> it was governed by a strict set of rules covering every aspect of life. This monastery was a self-contained community that focused upon long hours of manual labor, seven hours a day. 
combined with six hours of prayer and six hours of reading the scriptures. That was their life. Seven hours of prayer, six hours, excuse me, seven hours of work, manual labor, gardening, cleaning up, repairs, those kinds of things. Six hours of prayer, six hours of reading the scriptures every day. That was their life. Yeah. By the ninth century, the Benedictine rule had superseded all others, forming the basis for monastic life for the next 700 years. 700 years. That's a long time. That's a very long time. Now, can criticisms be made? Of course. We're supposed to be going into all the world and making disciples. Kind of hard to make disciples when you're closeted away in a monastery and you're in spend, your entire life is consumed with prayer and reading the scriptures and gardening and eating a very rough, you know, bland diet and, and, and wearing a very simple attire. You've, you've abandoned all creature comforts, all worldly possessions. It doesn't really go a long way towards evangelism, does it? It doesn't really help root out the immorality and impiety of the church. It is the, it is the retweet, retreat mentality. And there are certain threads of monasticism that continue to run even in today. Even today. The idea that, you know what, this world is so bad, we, we remnant of true believers, we need to just like pull back from this thing. I moved to North Idaho, hide out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Homeschool our children, control every aspect of their lives, our lives, avoid you know, being defiled by touching or becoming in contact with a, a very defiled world. Right. Those are monastic thoughts. So, in the good providence of God, though, there were two amazing benefits that resulted from it. And that's what I want to just point you to. And here they are. Criticisms can be many. Two benefits. First, the preservation of the scriptures. The preservation of the scriptures. As Europe plunged into the Middle Ages, the monasteries became the centers for the protection and reproduction of the scriptures. Because the monks had plenty of undisturbed time on their hands, they were able to undertake the laborious and time-consuming co- task of copying the scriptures by hand. Remember, they had come through these persecutions. Remember, Diocletian went after the scriptures. They're going to burn them and destroyed many manuscripts. And so, in God's good providence, we have these, these people cloistered away who have tons of time on their hand and, and highly value labor, devote themselves to, to hand copying in the, in the most uh, fastidious ways the Word of God. This is before the printing press. So this is all hand copied. And their, and their methods of checks and balances and so forth to make sure that, that these copies were accurate was really quite impressive, quite phenomenal. So, in the providence of God, the preservation of the Word of God that we have can be directly, directly attributable to the monastic movement. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the monasteries became centers for education. Not only did the monks copy the scriptures, but they also read and copied great works from antiquity. 
This preservation of learning was important later on since it was from the monasteries that many of the reformers received their initial education and were first exposed to both the scriptures and the Greek and Hebrew languages behind them. It became centers of learning. You would send your, your son off to be trained in this way. All right? So those two benefits, we are still reaping the benefits of that today through the monastic movement. Uh, you, would, you, would take, you would take a vow and join a, and join a monastic movement, yes. That's why you would receive the education? Yes. So they weren't really interested in expansion? No. Evangelism? No. Preservation. All preservation. Okay, good. Any other questions, observations on monasticism? Men only. Men. Uh, well, there were there were monasteries for women as well. Uh, it would have, yeah. I think, and I'm not positive. I I think they were lifetime vows, but could be repudiated. Remember Luther? Yeah, was Augustinian. Yeah. So. Okay. Good. Isn't it amazing we see God's providence take something that's definitely in in human in human implementation is kind of twisted and just accomplish such immense good from it? Were they under their own rule? Were they under any laws from any other? Well, there would be yeah, there would be you know they can't murder somebody or you know there was that kind of civil law, but they they had an intricate set of their own laws and they had their own internal discipline systems. For sin and law breaking and so forth, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Good. Okay, page twenty one. Page twenty one. The rise of the papacy. The rise of the papacy is the story of the corruption of the church and the concealing of the gospel from the people. It is the natural outcome of the corrupting influence of power and is, in some sense, both the product of its time and a major contributor to the darkness of the Middle Ages, right? the Dark Ages. The story begins with Leo I, who was officially the first pope. The word pope comes from the Latin and means father. The title pontiff means bridge builder. and refers to the Roman Catholic idea that the Pope is the bridge between God and man. Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical The Reunion of Christendom in 1885, declared that the Pope holds, quote, upon this earth the place of God Almighty, close quotes. He is considered supreme over all churches and peoples. All right. Those are pretty bold declarations. Pretty bold declarations. After Constantine moved the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople in 8330, things in Rome began to decline. Constantinople rose to prominence. There's a great graphic rolling around, by the way. Uh, I think it was on Twitter. It's put out by, um, 
Oh, what's that organization? Oh, rats. They, they put out um, visuals. No, 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 no. Uh, no, uh-uh. It's a, it's a secular organization, and I, they just eluded me. I should, probably shouldn't have brought it up. But text my wife. Get her to send it to us, please. It, it's really cool because what it shows is the population cities by rank beginning 3500 BC and rolling forward and just to see the, the rise and fall of various cities. And Rome, of course, at one point was the center of the, of the known world. But by this time, Rome was on a serious decline and Constantinople is rising and Constantinople lasted a thousand years. Rome began to decline. If you get it from her, Simon, sing it out. Ferocious warriors from Asia, known as the Huns, pushed the Germanic tribes towards Rome's western borders, resulting in an invasion from the north in AD 376. In AD 410, the Visigoths, Germanic peoples from the west, sacked the city of Rome. And in AD 476, the last Roman emperor in the west, Romulus Augustulus, was deposed, and a series of Germanic kingdoms replaced the Roman Empire in the west. During this time, Augustine wrote his famous book, The City of God, to explain the sacking of Rome by the Visigoths. To understand how shattering this notion was to the ancient world, that Rome itself had been sacked. He wrote, The City of God, a monumental work of written in response to the fall of Rome to the Visigoths. Some people blamed the Christians, arguing that Rome fell because its people had neglected the native gods. So Augustine responded by defending and explaining God's plan and working in history. He wrote, since Cain and Abel, there have been two cities in the world, the city of God, the faithful, and the city of man, pagan society. Though they intertwine, God will see that the city of God, the church, will endure throughout eternity. Though Augustine wrote at the end of the ancient world, his thoughts would dominate scholars of the Middle Ages and last into the Reformation. Okay. So you perhaps have heard of this, the city of God, famous work. During this period of social and political turmoil in the West, the influence and power of the church grew. People were looking for stability in their lives, and the church of Rome seemed to be able to stay above the fray. Society is breaking down all around them. Pause right there. Uh, I distributed to you. Let me shrink it. This book called The Fall of the Roman Empire by Michael Grant. Okay. Fall of the Roman Empire by Michael Grant. Here it is. It's not... It's not Gibbons. <laughs> it's not Gibbons. That's right. It's... Uh, I, I, I would encourage it on you or to you. Hold on, let me. I'm going to tell you how many pages it is. As soon as I get beyond the all the ends end notes, 205 pages. Oh, the font is little. <laughs> the two only 205 pages. It's the Fall of the Roman Empire by Michael Grant. Okay, uh, it's excellent. It's excellent. 
This sheet here, the causes of the fall of Rome from the fall of the Roman Empire by Michael Grant. So when I read this book, I just made notes along the way as he identified reasons for the fall of Rome. So uh, I bring them to you here um, because they are of historical interest um, and they have a remarkable resonance with the fall of the American Empire. So let's take a look at them. According to Michael Grant, the 14 reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire. Number one, a large and expensive military. A large and expensive military. That means that, that the majority of the tax receipts were being consumed to support the military on the frontiers as they tried to hold the empire together. Huh? Number two, military service falling upon the poor. Falling upon the poor. Three, growing military budgets in order to retain the goodwill of the generals. By this time, it was the generals who determined who would be the emperor. Palace coups, the Praetorian Guard. So, what's how you keep the general happy? You increase his budget. You increase his budget. Four, urban welfare roles financially supported by rural farmers. Five, heavy property taxes impoverishing the small farmers. All you libertarians in the crowd, you're going to love this. Six, excessive taxation leading to tax dodging. Seven, debased money leading to inflation. The denarius was originally a tenth of an ounce of silver. By this time, a denarius was a copper coin washed in silver. Was there any silver left in the American uh, money system? Anybody know? It's been long gone since 1964. It's been long gone. There's not even copper in a penny anymore. I hope you know that. It's zinc washed in copper. Copper is way too valuable to have it in a penny. Huh? Nickels have nickel and they're worth more than a nickel. Nickels have nickel and are worth more than a nickel, yes. They haven't figured out what to do about that yet. That's right. So they debased the money and that led to continual inflation. Number eight, 175 days per year given over or given up for public shows. Public shows. This is the Coliseum type events. Public spectacles. Bread and circuses, right? That's a term perhaps you're familiar with. The idea that they provided welfare roles, providing food distribution to people, and then the circuses. There was the Coliseum. The circuses were actually places like racetracks where they do chariot races and things like that. So it was Super Bowl Sunday and... Free food. It was just Super Bowl Sunday all the time. 175 days a year. Given over to this stuff. Nine, wealthy, avoiding public service in pursuit of a life of leisure. Ten, two systems of justice. One for the rich, one for the poor. Eleven, loss of personal freedom resulting in stifled initiative. 
In other words, as, as the government clamped down on personal freedom, people would just stop working. So you would have businesses that they would just close their shop. They'd say, I, I can't operate under these conditions. They would just close the shop. Uh, 12, a bloated and corrupt bureaucracy. 13, the ruling class losing contact with their constituents. And 14, ethnic disunity brought about by the Romans' disdain for the Germanic tribes whom they considered as racially inferior. Okay? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing. I commend the book to you. So, during this period of social political turmoil in the West, the influence and power of the church grew. People were looking for stability in their lives, and the church at Rome seemed to be able to stay above the fray. A significant event in the formation of the papacy came soon after the installation of Gregory I. There's old Gregory. Evidently, color film was invented by then. Okay. Gregory I, the installation of him to the office of the Archbishop of Rome. Lombards, another Germanic tribe, had invaded Italy and were threatening to once again sack the city of Rome. After appealing with no avail for help to Constantinople, Gregory took money from the church treasury and paid the Lombard soldiers their overdue wages in exchange for their agreement not to sack the city. This event, coupled with his skill as an organizer and administrator, caused his popularity with the people to rise to the point that later generations called him Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great. From this point forward, the papacy grew and consolidated its hold on both the conscience and purse strings of Europe. This is the entering into this period of time for the next 800 years or so to the most uh, dominant period for the papacy. So, let's look at some stuff here. Little known facts about the papacy. You got Gregory I, there's his dates, 590 to 604, established a concept that the Pope was the vicar or representative of Christ. He also established the doctrine of purgatory. It was later made official at the Council of Florence in 1439. We have Gregory VII, known as Hellebrand. He established the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. It's a helpful doctrine to have. He made a, that was made official at the Vatican Council of 1870. That's Vatican I. Right. So it was Vatican I in 1870. So it was Trent in uh, 1545 to 63, Vatican I, 1870, Vatican II, 1960, 234, somewhere in there. I think four. Oh. Okay. So the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. Page 22, we have Innocent III, who was clearly misnamed. Most powerful man in the world of his day. He taught that, quote, the Lord left to Peter not only the governance of the church, but of the whole world. He had an army. 
in an army to enforce it. During the 10th century, that would be the 900s, four popes were murdered while in office, frequently at the command of their successors. Just like secular kings were established and removed. From the period of 1880 to 1000, 1880 to 1000, that's 120 years, 30 popes reigned less than two years each. A lot of political turmoil. Why? Because there's a lot of money to be made. A lot of money to be made. 1305 to 1377 is known as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy, during which time seven successive popes were of French origin and reigned from a papal office in France, all the while subservient to the French kings. This period began when Philip of France, in defiance of Pope Benefice, Eighth's order to stop fighting with England actually took the Pope captive and jailed him in France until his death. Okay. 1378 to 1417, the Great Papal Schism, when a competing French and Italian Pope both reigned at the same time. During this period, the Roman Catholic Church had two colleges of cardinals, and each Pope excommunicated the other. The schism finally ended at the Council of Constance in 1414 to 1418. However, not before there were actually three popes reigning simultaneously. That's the Trinity right there. That's the Trinity right there. That's it. It was at this council that John Huss was condemned and burned at the stake for his, quote, heretical views. John Huss, the Czechoslovakian reformer. His goose was cooked. The Vatican is what is left of the vast tracts of land known as the Papal States, which were owned in Italy by the Catholic Church from AD 756 until 1871. 1871 was the unification of Italy after the Franco-Prussian War. For much of that time, the Pope was the largest landowner in all of Italy. Substantial portion of Italy was owned by the Pope. So the Vatican is all that's left. But it was once a vast empire. Vast empire. Well, let's see. Let's, we got to, well, let's do this. Are there any questions? If there are we're up against the time here a little bit. We can move forward or we can pause. Questions, clarifications, observations. John? Right. So that's the that's the um Paul's prophecy of the of the coming Antichrist. That's right. So this is probably a good place to say that, that for the reformers, they were convinced that the Antichrist was the Pope. Various popes at various times. Still uh, in a good bit of... (laughs) True enough. Yeah, a lot of money went through it, yes. So uh, that idea is not foreign at all, still, that the Antichrist will be uh, from the papacy, will be a pope. 
So in today, you know, in our day and age, it sort of spins out that like the the uh, the um, outreaches to the Islamic world. If if Roman Catholicism were to be able to incorporate Islam, that would give them the ability to resolve the Gordian knot of the Temple Mount. Maybe that's the Antichrist. Ten toes, the ten tribes of Europe, revive Roman Empire. I mean, this is the way th those kinds of theories play out. Okay. Do I think the Pope is the Antichrist? I think he, I think he, John says many Antichrists have already come into this world. So, yes, in that sense, for sure. For sure. Oh, there it is. Okay, can, can you, uh, can you back it up and activate it? Uh, well, let's, let's, yeah, we don't want to get too lost. Let's go back, um, oh, I don't know. Take, take me back to 325. Council of Nicaea. That'd be a great date to have on your on your um, timeline, by the way. Is it playing? Okay. So you see Rome, number one position, right? Alexandria in Egypt, Tukacanan, that is uh, Mexico, I believe. Yes, this is population, city populations in millions on the bottom. Just, you know, you just begin to watch the world change. Look at India. Just exploded onto the scene. Baghdad. London shows up. Paris, New York, Berlin, Chicago. Oh, wait a minute. They must be in our times. Yeah. Okay. What's that? What's the name of that website? They do all kinds of these kinds of That's it. Visualcapitalist.com. They have all kinds of these visuals that are an interesting way to look at different information. They have a great one on uh, on the uh, U.S. debt burden, where they they show you how many dollar hundred dollar bills it requires to make a a million, a billion, a trillion. It's just like and and then the debt growing alongside. I think it's the Statue of Liberty, if I remember. Uh, yeah, I think it's the Statue of Liberty. Long since eclipse, believe me. So anyway. Okay. Well, let's do that then. We're going to pause here. We will come back to the sacrifice of the mass. That way we can, we can take up the mass in its, in its totality. All right. So in our books, just for next time, what are we looking at? We are looking at German pietism. So German pietism. Ah, our friend Jonathan Edwards. We pick up Jonathan Edwards and then John Wesley. Pietism, Edwards, and Wesley. Those will be three really good chapters to read. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.